Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Most of us take for granted how easy it is to access water in this country. We turn on the faucet, whether at home or at work, and there it is. But imagine finding out the water in your town is contaminated. We know that happened in Flint, Michigan, where high levels of lead were found in the city's water supply. But contaminated water is an issue close to home. Have you heard of PFOAs? Well, recently the chemical has been found in New York State and New New Hampshire. We're joined now by a familiar voice, New England News Collaborative Executive Editor John Dankosky. Hi, John. Hi there, Lucy. So we're going to find out more about PFOAs, but you can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Um, now, John, in your new role as executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, um, you have reporters around uh, our region looking at PFOAs. Why is this story popping up now? Well, as you mentioned, the Flint, Michigan water crisis is something we've all been paying a lot of attention to. That story really has to do with two things, lead in the drinking water and a series of bad governmental decisions that led to this contamination and kept residents in the dark. Now, those two things, lead in the water and bad government action, are two things that a lot of us understand. What's really interesting and very scary here in the Northeast is there is a water crisis that's happening that's far less understood. We've seen problems with drinking water systems with PFOA in Hoosick Falls, New York. That's something we've covered in the past on where we live. Uh, But it's also happening in Vermont and in New Hampshire, which we'll hear about. It has residents of these communities really worried, and it points to kind of a bigger issue we're going to be covering uh, with a collaborative about the toxic legacy of manufacturing across New England. And one of your reporters covering the PFOA issue for the New England News Collaborative is Emily Corwin. She's a reporter with New Hampshire Public Radio. She joins us now from NHPR Studios. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Where We Live. Hi. Thank you. So give us just a basic lesson on what are PFOAs and where do they come from? Sure. So uh, PFOAs are one of a family of chemicals that um, there's a lot of acronyms, and I'm so sorry, but but known as PFCs. These are perfluorochemicals. Mm-hmm. And they're used, they've been used um, and are still used, uh, the family is, in um, the manufacturing of things like Teflon um, pans, pots and pans, popcorn bags. It's also been used in firefighting foam. And um, most famously, the, there was a big lawsuit around DuPont, which manufactured this um, material called uh, PTFE. There's just so many acronyms, but basically it's a, it's a coating that can be used to make things nonstick. It's really frictionless, um, like I said, used in Teflon, that kind of thing. And, and there was a big lawsuit in which DuPont ended up paying out a big settlement because um, it turned out that DuPont had known that these were likely toxic for a long time and not told anybody about it. And as, you know, the public's awareness and scientists' awareness of the toxicity of these chemicals that um, are part of this this coating came to light, more people started testing for it in their water. The EPA started creating guidelines. We recommend that testing. And people started finding it in their water, as they have here in New Hampshire and, like you mentioned, um, in many different parts of the country and in New England. Um, and so, so it's it's basically a string of carbons, and they're no longer using the eight 
a string of carbons anymore. They're now often using a six string of carbons, which is supposedly less toxic, but there's just simply not a lot of science around any of these and um, a lot of uncertainty as to how toxic they are. You mentioned that awareness about um, the impact on people's health has kind of brought to light people testing the water. Um, You spoke to a 24-year-old New New Hampshire resident, Brendan DeCamper, who contracted a rare thyroid disease at age 18. Um, You found out his family does not have a history of thyroid disease, and doctors were actually surprised that he would get a disease like this so young. Um, When you talk with him, he wants to know what can be done to give people closure. Let's hear a little from him. Reimbursement of time and energy. I was on bed rest for six months of my life. Like, I I can't get that back. I pay $15 a month for pills that I have to take every single day. Like, besides that, I'm a very healthy man, you know. Like, my doctor told me I've never had any health issues, and we can medically track that since moving to Merrimack, but that's when my thyroid issues started. And also, in 2013, my dad passed away of kidney cancer. What are we going to do for the people to, like, give us some closure, whether or not it is like, you know, the water had nothing to do with my health or if it did. So that sounds like tape from a public meeting. So what has been the overall reaction of residents in Merrimack, including from Brendan? So there's just, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. And I want to make clear to your audience, it's important to say that there's no certainty that, um, PFOA caused his uh, illnesses or that they for sure cause any specific illnesses. There's just a lot of research that shows that it's likely. (laughs) And so he um, and so many other people who have come to me who already have ailments are just, you know, it's a combination. You know, it's bad enough to have thyroid disease. It's another thing to not know why. And it's yet another thing to be told, oh, it might be because you were drinking contaminated water for decades, um, but we're really not sure. And so people are anxious and a lot are very angry. And then there's always this population that's, you know, well, uh, I'm healthy now. They're, you're prob- you know, everyone's probably overreacting about this. And, and there's sort of a certain degree of people who are just not paying attention. Um, and there's a scientist in Massachusetts who comes up and speaks in New Hampshire about this issue um, with relative frequency. It's popped up in other you know, a couple of years ago in other parts of the state, too. And he says, you know, it's so important to find a balance between, um, you know, un, uh, like sort of unnecessary reassurance that's not really appropriate because we don't know there there could be very serious health effects. And then, you know, fear mongering, which is also not appropriate. And I think it's been very difficult for the state to find the balance there. And I think they're getting better, but have not been, you know, great at that. Well, and I think that that's, uh, Lucy, one of the issues that, that Emily and, and her colleagues who are following this are really uncovering is that because of the uncertainty in the way that the EPA, the federal government, regulates chemicals. Uh, There's an awful lot that's not known at the state level. Um, Here's a little bit of tape, actually, that Emily brought us uh, about some of these challenges. This is uh, the New Hampshire Department uh, of of Health and Human Services, an epidemiologist named Ben Chan, speaking at an April 2016 uh, meeting, telling residents about just the limits uh, of their scientific knowledge about these chemicals that are out there. High cholesterol or uh, changes in liver function tests, that's a blood test a doctor can order, Uh, you know, changes in blood uric acid levels. Um, and in, in infants born to mothers looking at um, low birth weights in infants. These are some of the health effects that have more evidence for a connection between um, PFCs and, and health. But, but even these um, health 
outcomes are, are, are inconsistent in, in the, the medical and scientific studies, and so it's really unclear how to interpret some of the science that's out there, and so because of that, it, it's, it's hard to know what the long-term health effects are. And again, Lucy, we don't know very much about the long-term health impacts, but we also don't know very much about the chemicals. Uh, Emily mentioned earlier that the C8 compound, which has essentially been banned, uh, companies have stopped using it because they know it's bad for you. Um, it's been replaced by another chemical, but that chemical has not really been tested by the EPA. So it's it's essentially gone out into production, and there's a human health experiment going on around all of us, including the people of Merrimack, New Hampshire, about whether or not this is something that could be dangerous to them. Yeah, it brings to mind something that I heard Emily uh, say in a, an interview in New Hampshire. I think the, the statement that you said, Emily, was um, chemicals are innocent until proven guilty. Um, so we want to look at how the government is weighing, you know, what's the proper level in the water that won't impact people's health. Is that right? Is that right, Emily? Right. Um, I mean, you know, this this goes back. This is a historical sort of issue. It goes back to the 1970s, which is the last time until this past week that we have had um toxic chemical reform. And the bill, known as the Toxic Substances Control Act, uh, what it basically did is it grandfathered in just thousands and thousands of chemicals that had already been in production without testing them. And it made it, and and I believe, I know for sure that the C8s are in that group. I actually believe the C6s are too. And uh, that meant that there were just, you know, a lot of chemicals that went, you know, had already been in commerce and stayed in commerce that we have done no studies on. Um, and and it's, it is a problem that we're now, you know, coming to terms with. Asbestos is a very similar situation where the EPA didn't have the teeth, really, to regulate it. It took them a long time. It was very hard um, because, because chemicals are basically considered, like, like you said, innocent until proven guilty. And, and one of the things that we're reporting on, uh, Lucy, as part of the collaborative, is later on this week, uh, WNPR listeners will hear a story from Jill Kaufman at New England Public Radio about this Toxic Chemical uh, Control Act. It, basically, what, what this new rule does is it gives the EPA those teeth. The problem is at the state level, states have been the only ones regulating this stuff. So, for instance, in Vermont, they have a stricter standard around these PFOAs than in some other states. The question is, now that this Tosca bill has passed, what's going to happen to state regulators? They're saying, hey, we might be better watchdogs than the federal government is. Emily, I wanted to go back to um, some of the reporting you've done. Uh, last week, uh, we heard, you heard from Merrimack Town Council Chair Nancy Harrington, and she asked the independent town water authorities to understand people are not happy with the EPAs and states the 70 parts per trillion compliance level, and informing them the public won't be happy until they treat the entire water system, not just those wells. Let's hear from her. Basically, people have said that they want MVD to filter the entire system, whatever that may be, so that it gets down to 10 parts per trillion or to zero. Is that, you don't have to answer that. I just want to be able to communicate that to you. And so talk a little bit about how the town is ha- – I mean, do you put filters and, and the private supply and, and these wells? And how do you reme- remediate this if it's in the water? I think I heard that it's something that sticks to the water. You can't get – it's hard to get rid of. Right. So this compound is um, – it, it bioaccumulates. It never – it really – it takes a long time to break down, and it binds to water. And so, you know, it, you know it's coming out of stacks. It's, it's coming through the air. It's going into the ground. And then as it rains, it just binds to the water and goes into the aquifer. 
And so the remediation possibilities are, there's a number of them, and that's sort of where Merrimack and the surrounding towns that are affected are at. Um, There's a lot of private well owners dealing with this, and then there's um, one public water um, company, the Merrimack uh, Village Water District. And their choices are, you know, you can put filters in at the point of entry on homes. You could put filters in, um, you could you could filter the whole system. I mean, right now, Merrimack Village District is talking about a treatment, you know, building a, a treatment system. And they're trying to figure out, can they afford to treat those wells that are not in, com- that are already in compliance with the state's regulatory level because just because people are not comfortable with that. People don't trust the EPA's guidelines on this. You ask, I ask, you know, so many people, I say, you know, do you trust the EPA's um, health advisor level of 70 parts per trillion, which is the same level that New Hampshire has taken on as the state regulation? And, and everybody just says no. I mean, almost laughs at me. No, we don't trust that. We want nothing. We want zero. And... Um, and so right now, people are sort of trying to figure out, will the St. Gobain company that, that polluted, contaminated these contaminants into the into the water, will they pay for us to treat everything? Will they only likely treat, you know, what's not in compliance? It, it's a big, uh, I want to say it's a big mess uh, because, <laughs> because there's just so much for um, the state and the town and the taxpayers to grapple with um, you well, know, what the best thing to do is. Well, well and Emily, too, I, I think that that's one of the, the key parts of this is the taxpayers. How much is it going to cost to do all this? How realistic is it for all of these compounds to get out of a, a, a water system? We've heard from people who say this is essentially everywhere in the world right now. You're finding it in humans and in animal species all over. You know, one thing that has actually happened recently, we've got another reporter, Ambar Espinosa in Rhode Island, who's looking at um, a test that happened in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Last year, they did a water test, and it turned out that it was 71 parts per trillion, meaning last year, before the EPA revised its guidelines, that water was, quote-unquote, safe. Now, with the new guidelines, people there are saying, now my water's not safe. What do we do? They've instituted a new uh, regimen for testing quarterly, but every single municipal water supply that's faced with this PFOA crisis or a similar one is handling it differently because there is really a lack of guidance. So that's a lot, Lucy, of what we're going to be covering moving forward because there's a lot of stories to tell with all the old mills and manufacturing sites we have in New England. There's an awful lot of stuff we don't know about what is in your water. And then last question to Emily. I'm just curious, with a lot of questions out there, are people afraid to use the water, to bathe in the water? Is there a run on on the bottled water supply in, in New Hampshire? Right. I mean, the people who have um, out of compliance over 70 parts per trillion water in their wells um, are getting free bottled water from the state and using it. Many people who are above, say, 10 parts per trillion and below that 70 are buying the bottled water themselves. And everybody's showering it and nobody's happy about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of, uh, in a nutshell, where it's at. I want to thank Emily Corwin. She's a New Hampshire public radio reporter uh, joining us uh, through the New England News Collaborative, which is uh, John Tankowski's uh, new gig as executive editor. I want to thank both of you uh, to come in the studio to talk about PFOAs. When we return, we're going to look at a community in New York State where a citizen noticed people were getting sick and began testing the water. What he found has residents are now looking to the government for answers. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a lot of reporting going on lately about PFOAs, a chemical used in nonstick items like kitchenware. We just heard about PFOAs being found in New England water supplies, but awareness about this chemical contaminating water started in New York State. Um, we're being joined now in our conversation by Casey Seiler. He's a reporter with the Times Union newspaper in Albany. Casey, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the village of Hoosick Falls and, and what's been discovered there. Hoosick Falls is uh, in Rensselaer County, which is on the east side of the Hudson River, just across from Albany, where I'm talking to you. About a year, well, I guess it's about two years ago now, a local resident uh, named Michael Hickey began doing water tests on his own, including the municipal water system in the village of Hoosick Falls and the surrounding area. And he found a high level of PFOA in the system and in some private wells as well. He brought his concerns to local officials. They informed the state health department and the Department of Environmental Conservation. And what ensued was a period of about a year, a little bit more, where residents subsequently decided not enough was done. Uh, as recently as December, the state health department uh, was telling people that it was okay to continue to use the municipal water supply. It was only after the EPA uh, determined that the water was not safe for uh, extended use that the state then uh, told, told folks they should not be using it to bathe, not to cook in, certainly not to drink. And since then, there has been a flurry of activity. In January, the state declared any of the affected areas, areas with uh, high PFOA levels detected in the water, to be a, a Superfund site, a state Superfund site. The federal designation is still pending. Uh, this allowed you know, folks to move forward with expedited legal claims. It allowed the state to determine that the likely polluters, which in this case are two legacy manufacturers of cookware who had factories in the area, um, you know, would be obliged to pick up the cost and cover things like uh, bottled water and uh, the cost of a filtration system, or systems, I should say, that went on to the municipal water supply. Uh, I think that was the construction was completed on that, or the installation was completed in March. And then in the, in the weeks and months that followed on many of the affected private wells as well. Um, and just about three weeks ago, uh, the residents who had volunteered to have their blood tested got their results back. And that was very emotional. The state had conducted the testing. And what it found was that among those who were tested, they had a, a, a level of PFOA in their system that was about 11 times higher than the national uh, level. In other words, the, the level that you would expect to find just in sort of the, in the national, in, in the average American, basically. And what the state said was, yes, the, the geometric mean for the people who were tested was 11 times above uh, the national level. But the good news, if you want to put it that way, is that it was lower than the levels detected in some other areas that have suffered from PFOA contamination, including, for example, West Virginia. Uh, Casey, if we could back up a little bit, um, you mentioned the citizen who began testing the water. I mean, what prompted him to do that? Isn't that the job of local health departments? I mean, and why wasn't this um, the, the PFOAs and the levels noticed a lot earlier? His father had died of, uh, of cancer. He had uh, kind of anecdotal knowledge that uh, others in the community had suffered from 
strange ailments, uh, you know, the, the sort of things that PFOA has been linked to, certain forms of cancer, thyroid difficulties, and that's, that's what prompted him to take action. And the, the residents of Hoosick Falls, now that these blood test results are coming back, I mean, what are they asking the state to do? Well, they want hearings, first of all. They want hearings into the, the course of response by the state, by the feds, and by local officials. Um, there was a very emotional news conference uh, two weeks ago, just as the legislative session here in Albany was wrapping up. Um, a group of about two dozen uh, residents and their children came down to the Capitol. You know, you can imagine what it's like for a parent who either has grown up in Hoosick Falls or moved to Hoosick Falls and is raising children there to find out that because of the community, because of where you choose to live, your child has this potentially alarming level of a, a, a toxic substance in their system. After they had a news conference, they marched down to uh, the, what's, uh, the second floor, which the, is the executive chamber, the governor's suite of offices, and they demanded to talk to the governor, who, as it turned out, since it was the end of the legislative session, a serious negotiating season, he was in his office. And after about a half an hour or so of waiting, uh, they were let in not to talk to the governor, who uh, was very busy, they were told, but to speak to State Director of Operations Jim Malatris, who, in a very emotional hour-long meeting, uh, sort of heard their grievances and you know, did his best to assure them that the governor was, was doing everything, that the administration was doing everything they could to deal with the problem. So they, the residents walked away from that meeting feeling better, feeling like their grievances had been heard, but, um, but still wanting still wanting hearings to, to, uh, to actually put, put on the record what, what had happened. Something else they want is uh, serious health monitoring going forward. The state has already secured the services of doctors at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City to do a, a long-term study to determine if, in fact, residents of Hoosick Falls are you know, facing uh, higher medical peril because of the contamination. Do the residents feel in a way that they're guinea pigs? I mean, we've been hearing that the science behind PFOAs, I mean, they're still trying to figure out what the health consequences are to, um, to humans. And so um, while they may be getting uh, this health monitor monitoring through Mount Sinai, I mean, it doesn't give them real assurances about what's happening to their bodies now, right? Oh, correct. I mean, they, they're, first of all, they're worried, they're worried about the health of their loved ones. They're worried about their own health. They're worried about kind of their economic futures. They are now living in a community where, as you can imagine, it's going to be quite difficult to, to sell a house. They're, they're also worried about the long-term sustainability of, you know, the water coming out of their wells, the, the, the filtration systems that have been put on, you know, the municipal and the private water systems is not a permanent fix. A permanent fix is going to be finding you know, a new water source, and the state is now in the process of figuring out how exactly that that might be done. But, of course, that's not something that is going to take place for, you know, uh, at least a year, I would say. Um, but do they feel like uh, like guinea pigs? I'm, I, I'm, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure. I think that right now they're 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 angry first and foremost that it took this long to prompt action from from the officials who are supposed to be looking out. 
And when residents get angry, sometimes you see lawsuits uh, happening. What's going on there in terms of civil suits filed against not just uh, Hoosick Falls officials, but New York State? Some have uh, already dropped against the, uh, the, the, the two corporations that have been determined to be the, the likely source of the contamination, and that's Honeywell and uh, St. Gobain Performance Plastics. Um, uh, Whites and Luxembourg, which is a large uh, personal injury law firm, was uh, one of the first large firms on the ground. They brought in Aaron Brockovich, a name you know famed in uh, in both Hollywood and environmental activism. Uh, she came in as a consultant and uh, and presided over a, a, a very well attended listening session, not in Hoosick Falls, but just over the border in Vermont, where, as you probably know, this problem has also. Has also presented itself. Um, uh, one large class action lawsuit has already dropped. There are local attorneys, uh, some of whom have partnered with larger firms outside of Hoosick Falls. Uh, suits have already arrived. More suits are almost certainly coming, without a doubt. So short short term, uh, people are using bottled water, and there are filters being put on these wells in the private water supply. Yeah, the filters. The Public filters, I think, in almost every case uh, case has or, have already gone on. But uh, just yesterday, there was a press conference down here at the Capitol once again, uh, when the Department of Environmental Conservation held a meeting to uh, to to absolutely regulate PFOA or determine that PFOA is a toxic substance. It's still being used in some cases in in firefighting materials, manufacturing, cookware manufacturing has pretty much gotten rid of it. But one of the residents who showed up for that press conference said, uh, you know, when she's gardening, when she needs to water her vegetables, she uses bottled water because she's not going to run the risk of uh, having her kids get any more PFOA in their systems, you know, even even secondhand by eating vegetables that have been irrigated with, uh, with uh, municipal water. Wow, well, this is definitely a story we want to check in again uh, with you, Casey Seiler. Uh, Casey is a Capitol Bureau Chief for the Times Union in Albany. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Where We Live. My pleasure. And if you appreciate this kind of conversation on WMPR, here are two of my colleagues who want to remind you that now's the time to support this radio station as we near the end of the fiscal year. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on Thursday, baseball in Hartford isn't happening yet. That's because the stadium is still not done. Are you surprised? Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin will join us in studio. We'll take your comments and questions, not just on baseball. That's on Thursday. Today, where we live, we're turning to Brexit. The historic vote by the U.K. to leave the European Union has caused shockwaves around Europe and in the international market. We're wondering how this could impact us here in Connecticut. Who better to ask than our own business reporter, WNPR's Harriet Jones, who hails from Scotland. Welcome back yes, to where we live. Thanks very much. <laughs> now, for our listeners, you know, you were just on the show uh, late last week talking about insurance mergers. But given the fact that Brexit had just broke, we wanted to have you back on, not only because of your business perspective uh, as a reporter for so many years, but because of your Scottish roots. And so I know the story you did for WNPR focused on, you know, what is the impact on our state? Yeah, I will just say, I have to say that last Friday when I was on, just as a sidebar, I was glad I actually managed to make any sense because I'd been up most of the night just scrolling through my Twitter feed as the Brexit vote was happening saying, what? What? (laughs) 
So <laughs> just as a personal sidebar. But yes, exporting is incredibly important to the Connecticut economy. We actually punch a bit above our weight as far as exporting is concerned. You know, per capita, we export more goods and services than many other much bigger states. Uh, about $15 billion annually, round about there, of goods and services go from Connecticut all around the world. Um, but the EU is actually our most important trading partner. So seeing this kind of disruption in the EU is incredibly um, dis- destabilizing to you know many of Connecticut's companies. They're really wondering what the effect is going to be. Um, if you think about looking at some of the, the, the countries in the EU, France is actually our very top trading partner, and that's really because of aerospace goods. That's because of the relationship that United Technologies, Pratt & Whitney, UTAS have with Airbus, the big French plane maker, about $6 billion worth of their goods go to France each year. Germany is our second biggest trading partner, and the UK itself is within that top 10 of our trading partners. So seeing this kind of disruption in the European Union is really quite concerning to Connecticut companies. And who did you speak to for your story? So I spoke with, uh, I, I did speak on background to some companies. Many companies actually don't want to talk publicly about this type of thing um, because, you know, in some ways uncertainty is bad. Even talking about uncertainty is also bad. They don't want so much to hear the kind of speculation that's going on in the press right now. They're very annoyed with some of the, the media outlets who are hyping up, you know, the uncertainty around Brexit. And basically a lot of companies are saying, Let's wait and see. Let's calm down. Let's see what the effects of this might be. So they, they, a lot of them don't want to speak publicly. I did speak with um, an economist, Alyssa De Jong, of um, the Connecticut Economic Resource Center, and she says this kind of uncertainty is really very damaging for companies. That can definitely affect company investments because when things are uncertain, companies typically reduce their investments. So you mentioned the aerospace industry. What are some other sectors in Connecticut's economy um, that relies on Europe? So financial services is incredibly important, too. You think of London, that huge financial center in Europe. It really is you know, the, almost the financial capital of the world. And we have a lot of insurance and financial relationships with the EU. Um, also pharmaceuticals. I think of Pfizer being you know, one of the international companies that operates both in Connecticut and in, in the UK. Uh, there's a lot of um, Boehringer. Ingelheim is also a European company. These types of companies that have relationships on both sides of the Atlantic to pharmaceuticals, uh, aerospace and defense um, uh, and fa- finance are some of the top, top sectors. You mentioned um, that Connecticut companies don't want to really talk about the impact of Brexit because of all the uncertainty. What about the Connecticut delegation? What are our lawmakers saying? Yeah, so I did I did manage to talk, talk to Joe Courtney last week um, just after the Brexit vote happened because he's somebody who's been, you know, uh, on a lot of trade missions. He's been to Europe a lot with um, British companies. Um, and he says, you know, some of the more immediate effects that are going to be playing out for these companies – are surround the currency issues. This is what he had to say. I've been in the room on trade missions with Connecticut companies who uh, show over and over again that they are number one in terms of quality and on-time delivery. But at some point, cost is an issue. So what he's talking about there is this, one of the instant effects we saw of the Brexit vote was the drop in the pound. So the pound is now at a 30-year low. Um, and what I mean, that's great for tourists. If you want to go over to, to Britain this this summer, it's a great time to do it because your trip is going to be much cheaper than it would have been. It's not great for companies because the effect of it is to make our goods and services much more expensive in in, in the UK. So, I mean, you know, 
there's a couple of uh, different aspects to that because, of course, the pound has fallen against all currencies, so everybody's goods are more expensive, and Britain still needs to do imports. Um, so, but but our our companies are definitely looking at that effect. Um, speaking of of Europe and our connection there, I know Aer Lingus is starting an, a direct flight service from Hartford. So, could Ireland become the state's new gateway to Europe? Well, that's one of the things that Joe Courtney said to me. He said, "Well, look, with this new Aer Lingus flight starting up, and the fact that the Republic of Ireland is still in the EU, and it also has the euro." Um, the Britain still has the pound. The rest of Europe has the euro as its currency. You know, perhaps Ireland is going to look pretty attractive now uh, as somewhere that um, companies could, could use as a gateway into Europe. The other place that's been mentioned to me that a lot of companies are now looking to is the Netherlands mm. because, again, they have the euro. There's not a currency issue there. M- most people speak English. There really isn't a, you know, a language issue. Um, and, and the Dutch are really very keen for that kind of relationship. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Here with me is WNPR's Harriet Jones, our business reporter, who has Scottish roots. We're just talking a little bit about Brexit and how Brexit and how it affect, affects uh, our region. And I wanted to actually talk with you as someone with Scottish roots. You, you were saying uh, that last Thursday night that you were up all night waiting for um, the, the vote. And when you saw that um, the UK voted to leave uh, the, Amer- the European Union, you were pretty shocked. I was shocked. I was dumbfounded. Actually, I have to say, because I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention. You know, I'd been following the news somewhat in the run up to the referendum, but I had always in the back of my mind thought, that's not going to happen. People are not going to vote for that. There'll be a bit of a protest vote, but people won't really vote to leave the European Union. It's such a seismic shift in how Britain has been governed for the last 40 years. Why would people do that? Um, So, yeah, I was was really, really shocked. And that's actually been the. the, uh, that's been the reaction of many people I've talked to, my own family back in Scotland, and many people, m- many of my friends that I've talked to since last Thursday night, really are, uh, you know, totally surprised that this actually went through. And we've, I think, we've even seen that effect with some of the leaders of the Leave campaign. There's a slight feeling that perhaps they are like the dog that caught the car. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They weren't exactly expecting this to actually happen, um, and there doesn't seem to be, you know, a plan for how we go forward with this. And just to um, reiterate, so when we look at the UK vote, Scotland and Northern Ireland, they overwhelmingly wanted to remain. Right. Scotland, I think 62% remain. Northern Ireland was very strongly remain. London and some of the more cosmopolitan cities in England were all very strongly remain. It was more the kind of the, the rural areas of England, the rural areas of Wales, the old industrial towns where, you know, life is a little harder, unemployment is a little higher. Those were the areas that voted to leave. Now, you're going to be heading back to Scotland in just a few weeks. Yes, I am. Yes. Yeah, I try to get back every year. I'm lucky enough to be able to do that. You know, I do have family still back there. So I take my kids back to see the family. So it's going to be fascinating this year. You know, um, just a couple of years ago in the wake of the um, Scottish referendum vote, that was another very interesting time to be back in Scotland. So now again, you know, Britain's going through a really interesting shift. And politically, what's happening now with this talk of, of a bid for independence for Scotland? Is that something that's premature? Yeah. So the, the Scottish independence referendum was defeated fairly convincingly a couple of years ago. And I think people thought, well, that's a done deal now. But now with, I mean, what the Scottish Prime Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon has said, is this, um, this is what you would call a material change in circumstance. So the UK has changed the frame of the debate and said, well, we're not going to be in the EU anymore. And for Scotland, she says that's a reason to really consider a second referendum, to consider whether um, Scotland can leave and then rejoin the EU. 
And what do you think is going to happen personally? It, it's really, I, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people who know a whole, whole lot more than I do are still scratching their heads about what, you know, what this might mean and where that where we go from here. It's going to be very interesting to see what the effect is in Scotland. You also think about the effect in England because one of the things that the the Leave people said was we want to control immigration. You know, the money that was sent to the European Union and the immigration debate were the biggest um, rallying cries in the Leave campaign. So if they really want to be able to control their borders and if Scotland voted to be independent and to rejoin the EU... Would there then be a hard border between Scotland and England? You know, would we set up checkpoints? Would you, they need visas to, to right, visit? Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, we haven't had a hard border between those two countries since the Middle Ages. I mean, it's just, it's almost unthinkable. What's the workforce like in, in Scotland? I know when I went to Ireland a few years ago, um, there were a lot of Eastern Europeans working yes. in Dublin. Yeah, in fact, that's, that's very much the case. You know, in, in Edinburgh, there's a very big Polish population now because there is this you know, um, free migration of people across the European Union. Many people have chosen um, to come and settle in the UK, many Romanians, many Polish people. Um, And it's interesting when you look at, you know, again, the profile of the vote, the places where there are these high levels of immigration, places like Edinburgh, places like London, did vote to remain. So almost, you know, the places where immigration is, you think might, might think would be the bigger issue, those are places that feel more international that want to remain in the EU. I want to talk a little bit more about the politics in Scotland. I was just reading on the BBC this morning, Tory leader Ruth Davidson Davidson, uh, told a a program there that moves to have a second independence referendum were premature. And quote, if we're talking about protecting Scotland's right to the market, we're talking about Scotland's economy. If you think you've seen an economic shock in the last four to five days to Scotland's economy taking us out of the UK, which is a far bigger market than us, more than four times as much would be four times the shock to Scottish economy. So that's a, an interesting viewpoint out there. Well, that was certainly something that was um, said during the uh, first independence referendum a couple of years ago. You know, the biggest argument against it was this will be really bad for Scotland's economy to sever its ties with England. Um, and Scotland's economy can't exist on its own. That was what was said by the people who wanted to, you know, the UK to remain intact. So, I mean, yes, Ruth Davidson is the, the Scottish, uh, the leader of the Conservatives in Scotland. So she's one of the people that wants to remain within the union. Um, and, you know, again, that's going to be another debate that's going to play out. Are we better remaining with the UK but leaving the EU? Or are we better, you know, with this bigger single market in the EU? I'm curious about um, the generation gap in Scotland in terms of, of political activism. So we're hearing a lot that the younger generations of, in the United Kingdom are very upset that the vote to leave uh, happened, that they feel like they're now going to be left with this huge mess. Um, I'm just curious what the, the sentiment is in Scotland right now in terms of the, the younger generation versus the old. Yes. Um, I mean, I think across the board, there were more people who voted to remain. And, and, and so, you know, there are more of the older generation in Scotland did vote to remain. And I think actually Scotland, you know, has always felt like a more European or open to Europe place than England has. And, you know, just in a kind of an emotional way, England has felt, has never quite felt European. Um, Whereas Scotland, um, and this is maybe a historical thing over many, many centuries, has felt, you know, before it was, when it was an independent country, you know, many, many centuries ago, it actually had more of an alliance with France than it did with England. So, you know, emotionally, maybe it's always felt more like a European place than England has. 
So, so, so as long as I've known you, Harriet, you've been taking these family trips with your children. Um, what have you been telling them about this, uh, the, polit- the politics in, in Europe and what they may see when they go to Scotland yeah, this summer? Yeah, there's been a lot of politics around my, <laughs> my you know, family dinner table every night um, for the last few weeks. Um, so it's been interesting to, to talk over, you know, because, I mean, the European Union is a very complex subject, and it's not something that you naturally discuss with your kids, but it's come up a lot, and it's been interesting to kind of explain what that is and learn more about it myself. Um, you know, so, it, it, and again, it will be interesting for my kids to be able to go and talk to people there and see how did they vote, what did they think. And last question, are you going to be able to stay away from the newspapers and have a va- nice vacation, or will you I be? I won't want to. <laughs> I totally won't. I, no, I'm fascinated to go and see, you know, what's happening over there, what people think, so... So we may check in. We may call you while you're oh, over there. Oh, please do. <laughs> please do. Happy to talk. <laughs> I want to thank WNPR's business reporter, Harriet Jones. You can check out her reporting at WNPR.org. We also tweeted out a link to her story about how Brexit impacts Connecticut's economy. And if you enjoy where we live, we need your support. Here's a couple of folks standing by to let you know how to support this radio station. <laughs> 